everybody. Welcome to another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. Today, I am speaking with Deb Kemper from Golden Seeds, and I am looking forward to learning about Golden Seeds as you are. So, Deb, welcome. Let's start by introducing our audience to yourself as well as to the investment uh, thesis and focus of Golden Seeds. Sure. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. I am what's called an angel investor, as, and that is what Golden Seeds is. Uh, Golden Seeds is a hybrid angel network and small micro VC fund. The angel network has around 300 members across the United States, and we primarily invest in companies that have a women, woman founder or woman on the founding team. So we like to call it gender diversity. It doesn't have to be a majority female-owned company, but it has to have a woman in the C-suite with at least yep. 10% equity is our, is our uh, cutoff Criterion. on our, our funding. And the reason we do that is this is a, a group of people that have been historically underfunded in the VC markets and the angel, angel funding markets, uh, receiving less than less than anywhere from three to five percent of venture capital, uh, and less than twenty percent historically of angel capital. And so we're just trying to get to parity uh, in that, and we feel there's there's positive um, and above market returns in trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what check sizes do you like to write? So, uh, you know, our check sizes vary whether or not, you know, we've let a deal or not. But I'd say on average, we're looking for companies that are looking to raise between half a million and several million dollars on their seed round. And, Mm -hmm. you know, on the upper side of that, we would normally be syndicating with other angel groups or smaller micro VCs. And how big is the micro VC portion of your um, activity? So Golden Seeds uh, has had a has a fund that has about 30 million under under management. Okay. So which is you know again that's, that's why we call it micro VC. That that it's, these days that seems like a smaller VC fund when they're raising upwards of a billion dollars these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know this this is part of the um, what the shift that's happening in the. Um, early stage, seed stage venture capital ecosystem. There is, there are now 700 plus micro VCs in the market. So it's that that part of the uh, ecosystem has a lot of liquidity, but it, it's it's become very complicated to understand who wants to invest in what stage of validation. Right? There is pre-seed. There is, you know, seed. Now, how do you define seed? What stage of validation qualifies as a seed? Everything is moving upstream in terms of how much validation is required to raise money these days. That's very true, and and it's one reason why we like having the affiliated fund is because it helps bring some of that later, that, that a longer, um, uh, what's the right way to say this, the, um, you know, the follow-on capital because it's taking yeah. longer. There's more micro VCs, but you still need to have the runway to get to what used to be a Series B is now what we call a Series A. Absolutely, and, so and not, not, not more, even that it could be money. a pre-series A before <laughs> series A as well. So yes, it's very, very uh, complicated. So so you could be in a situation where your angel group funds um, a pre-seed or a seed, and then he comes in with the 
with the post seed or pre series A is that a reasonable observation? Yes, yes, that could that that, that could happen, or sometimes they might come in at the same time. But I'd say okay. normally the angels like to go in a bit earlier than than a, you know than, than traditional funds might want to do. Okay, and uh, so let's talk about that. Um, uh, what is the level of validation that your angels are looking for? Are we talking pre-seed? Are we talking seed? What kinds of um, metrics are you looking for in the angel part of the equation? So I always say it varies. I think we have some investors who really like to go in early, like to be first money in. You know, they might be willing to go in before you have customers and you might be working to develop your, you know, your minimum viable product. Uh, mm -hmm. And we have others who I think there's more angels who want to come in once you, you have a clear first customer, uh, customer market fit, right, or product market fit and, and customer mm -hmm. base you're going after. So, again, with a wide variety of angels, in our network, you have a variety. It's a bell curve, right? There's some who like to go early, and there's some who are a little more, you know, risk averse. Even though these are risky investments, I say there's some who take more risk tolerance in the sector, and some who who prefer a little less risk tolerance. What's and what is the earliest oh. they would go in? Is it a pre-seed? Would you, would people go in with a with no product, just a concept, or people want to see validated uh, product market fit before they would go in? No, people will go in before validated product market fit. I'd say it's between a concept and having that. So usually some something built that, you know, at least a beta is what we would say. We, we rarely go in on an alpha stage of, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a concept on a napkin is what I like to refer to it as, and we're going to go build it out. We generally like mm -hmm. to see that people have figured out a way to do that initial initial build out, and we'd come in at the beta where, there's probably some clear testing you're trying to do, some milestones you're trying to hit, and could then, you know, there's the clear, um, clear uh, stage gating of, of what's going to happen and things that will be learned from that, you know, with whatever money we're putting in, whether it's a half million or it's a million and a half dollar raise. What I was going to say about Golden Seas, just a quick thing, is it's also very different. We, we, are, we are what we call sector agnostic. Since we focus on the gender diversity question, we try not to limit too much on the technologies and sectors that we look at. So mm -hmm. a big difference in this might be we see uh, some life sciences companies that would be very far from, from revenue. And right. so it's not that, that you have to have all revenue. That's why it's, it's always hard to give a very definitive answer, like some well, for this, that have a for very this narrow thesis. For this conversation, let's limit the discussion to technology and technology-enabled services only, and that's information technology. We don't do biotech. We don't do pharma. We don't do life sciences. So, um, so you can answer all my questions with just the IT uh, and IT-enabled services hat on. Perfect. So, um, all right. So now, you sector ag agnostic, yes, but let's um, let's talk about within IT. Are you doing both B2B and B2C? Are both of those okay? Uh, we, we, we prefer the majority of our investments are B2B. Uh, if mm -hmm. we do B2C, it's what I would call B2B2C, <laughs> so where okay. you know, maybe you're going, you, you're, your ultimate end user is an individual, but you might be the channel to them is through businesses. Businesses, okay. Okay. Right, maybe companies. And what about, I, I, go ahead. 
I would say, you know, where you're selling into like employee benefit programs or some things we're seeing, or you're going in through uh, in, in some of the other app applications we see, you're going in through someone who's then going to rebroadcast out your application to get to that ultimate okay. end user. And what about geography? Uh, Golden Seeds invest nationally. So we okay. only invest in U.S.-based companies, but we mm -hmm. do invest nationally. We have hubs in six cities, so Boston, New York, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, and Silicon Valley, which isn't a city, it's a region, but that's how we define it. Sure, <laughs> uh, so we have fine. hubs there, but we will look at deals from across the U.S., and we normally funnel those into whatever group is, is closest. Okay. Because there is something, there is a bit of a regional bent uh, to angel investing. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about a few of your portfolio companies. Um, just pick ones um, from the IT, IT-enabled services sectors. What are some of the highlights of your portfolio? And, and especially as you're talking through them, if you could give us a flavor of how, uh, you know, what was the thinking behind choosing to invest in those companies? And then how does the angel group and the micro VC um, play into a deal? Sure. Okay, so in the IT enabled services, so a company in our portfolio is called Group Eyes. Uh, this is a company that's been around for four, I think around four or five years. Golden Seeds was the deal lead on that, which means we wrote the term sheet and, and um, have been working closely. We have a, someone who's on the board. I am not on the board of this particular company. But they basically are a, a, a service, um, a SaaS platform that is helping travel planners book small meetings. So these are meetings of less than 20 people where normally you don't have a formal event planner, but you need there's some technology integration to make this happen smoothly for people. And what makes this attractive is it was founders who knew the market. They came out of the travel industry. Um, they, they had started building the technology that was needed. Um, we're able to get a team around them to do that technology build out. And what kept it going over time is that they really started building their reputation in the market. And we're seeing large industry players starting to stand up and take notice. And so they're, you know, they're growing the revenue. I mean, they're still private. I have to be careful what I say, but it's just, it's a good, uh, it's been it's been great to watch how they've had to do some pivots and tailor their product over time, but still are really you know the market's catching up to the vision that they that they had. So that's one that's one example. Um, another example is a company called Constant Therapy, which is in actually the healthcare space, but it's an it's an app that actually was to consumers. It was for stroke patients to help them do therapy at home and continue their speech therapy at home. And uh, again true domain expertise in the founding team. Uh, the founder, one of the founders um, is an expert in this area out of Boston University and founded this company. And it was actually one of, it's, it's my portfolio is still young, but it's one of the exits I had. They were acquired within 18 months of our investment um, mm -hmm. by a bigger, bigger player, um, Digital Health Corp that wanted to bring this technology in house. And so it's, it's trying, I think there's a thread between those both of those, it's people who really see a need in the market and are building the technology uh, for folks to then say, okay, I want, th they're growing, they've got a real customer base, we can acquire them and bring them in. And what, um, what stage did you get involved in either of these companies? 
What did they have when they came uh, to you? Yeah, so for both of them, a golden seed was in their initial seed financing round. On one, I was in the seed. On another, I got in a little bit later. I it just I didn't invest the first time it came around. I, I kind of missed some of the initial up round, but I got in later on. <laughs> and um, did the fund, did your micro VC also invest in these companies? Uh, it did in one of them, but that's okay. yeah, it did it did it did in a, in one of them. So I, I'm listening to you about the second company where you, you've already got an exit within 18 months, which is a good segue into a question that I want to ask you. Um, you know, there are 700 plus micro VCs and tons of angel groups, and, and, and I've, I talk to a lot of them. And I very often hear that these are people who are all looking for unicorns, you know, billion dollar market cap eventually billion-dollar market cap companies. And I'm thinking, well, that's not mathematically possible. Unicorns are rare animals. So we can't really have unicorns a dime a dozen. So, so however, we are in 2018. There are tons of companies out there, a tons of niches out there, and, and there are lots of companies that are pursuing some of these niches. So you can actually build very good businesses that are, you know, catering to some of these niches. Maybe they don't have these billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar TAM. They're operating on $200 million, $300 million TAMs and, and building, you know, good products that fit into those niches and, and have product market fit and so forth. So you can do capital-efficient business building in these niches, and then you can potentially seek early exits. The truth is, over most of the exits in the industry happen under $50 million at an mm -hmm. under $50 million yep. valuation yep. range. So what, what is your thought on all this? How, how do you process all this? I mean, this unicorn so mania versus... <laughs> I am not a unicorn hunter. I'll be very honest. I, I follow a very similar philosophy to what you laid out in terms of most, most of these companies um, exit via M&A merger and acquisition yeah. between 30 and $50 million. And you okay. can have a whole bunch of those um, and they're fairly capital efficient and have a very good return on investment. So my investment thesis is you can have, you can do great with a bunch of doubles and thing and triples um, mm -hmm. and companies where you're getting your return faster uh, versus trying to go unicorn hunting. The issue with unicorns is, that they require a lot of capital and as an angel investor or a very small fund you cannot you don't have enough capital to stay in the game and not be and not be crammed out or wiped out off the cap table but if you have a company that's only going to need maybe 5 to 10 million to get to an exit it's a much more it's a much safer place not quite the right word but it's to be playing in versus companies that you see are going to need unicorns take 500, you know, 50, 100, 250 plus million dollars to get to market. We can't play with that coming in with initial check sizes of the 250 to 500K range, right? Yeah. As, you know, as, as angels, well, you just, you just can't continue to play. These large investors load the cap tables up with the liquidation preferences and, and squeeze down all the early investors and so on and so forth. There are lots of right. dangers of play, unicorn hunting for small, small funds and angels, I think. It, and I think there's a couple other things about unicorns versus not, right, which is there are a lot of really good business ideas out there. 
And, yeah. and companies are looking, you know, if you think about the, mer- the M&A markets, right, your bigger companies, your corporates, right, are looking what a lot of people will view as competition when people are building these companies are actually looking to acquire growth. And so exactly. if you have an idea that you're then, you know, you're showing that you, you're getting significant year-on-year revenue growth and you start getting into the $10 million plus revenue range, you're, you're attractive for someone to acquire and then take the, use them to help you scale versus at least what I see when I talk to corporate venture folks is they don't want to go and rebuild this. It's cheaper and easier for them to acquire the talent and, and, and the customer base versus trying to rebuild. Um, you know, whereas I think on the, the unicorn hunters, they're trying to be extremely disruptive. Um, and yeah, they do some amazing things. And, and hopefully I'll have something that's that, you know, that, that, that's that big. But if I limit myself to only trying to find those, I could have none. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm completely in agreement with you. And I, I really think that there should be a large pool of investors who are not unicorn hunters, but who operate within the equity investing framework that we use in our ecosystem but, and can, you know, may have successful investments, the, the doubles and triples, as you call them. And, uh, and, and we need more of those. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate to see this mania, uh, unicorn hunting mania. And, and it, it actually makes me feel like we're just going to see a lot of failures unnecessarily where some of the, this money could have been channeled better. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also a function of fund economics, right? Which is, uh, you know, if you, if you have a $30 million fund, you get a $60 million exit, you've paid back your fund. Right. Yeah. Plus, whereas if I have a, you know, a billion dollar fund, right, I need a billion dollar exit plus, right, to return. Right. My fund. That's a different business. I think a billion dollar <laughs> fund, uh, that's growth equity. That's almost private equity. That's not really venture capital because you can't really, uh, you know, if you have a billion dollar fund, you have to write very large checks. And that's that almost if you force entrepreneurs to to take that level of capital, you're just setting the exit bar so high and, and there are fewer acquirers and then you have to go public. Not everybody can go public, blah, blah, blah. Gets into very unhealthy dynamics often. Yeah. I think there's another piece of it too, though, which is um, some conversations I've been having with entrepreneurs recently, which is there's something about running lean early and really yeah, finding absolutely. product market fit and having some failures and not on a lot of cash that where they have very creative ideas on how to do things. You don't want, you don't want to starve, right, a company. But there is something to having the right amount of cash at the right time um, versus, hey, we're just going to go build something out, go big or go home, and then you end up with nothing. Right. It's, it's just, you don't no believe at creative. all and go big and go home. I think it's complete bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear. I didn't hear. I missed your first part of that. Go big or go home. I said we don't believe at all and go big and go home. I think it's yeah. complete bullshit. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I sort of prefer the. I prefer the do it, try it, fix it approach. Is one phrase I use. You know, so you know, do something, try it, and then fix it, and also go slow to go fast, which is. You know, do some do some foundational work that's needed yeah. to then really be able to just you know use that as a platform to to scale quickly. But I think if you try and scale too quickly, a lot of times it's on an unstable foundation. 
Yeah. So um, slightly different line of questioning, um, since you are working all with the female founders, um, what is your take on the ecosystem? Do you believe there is a bias against women in the uh, women in entrepreneurs in the ecosystem? So I do, but I don't think it's conscious, right? I think it's unconscious and that that's what makes it so difficult to try and change. There's a lot of research that's been coming out recently. Folks like Donna Kahn's from Columbia, Lakshmi Balachandra from, from, um, from Babson that have been doing a lot of really amazing research on this and showing the biases we have as investors when mm -hmm. we're talking to entrepreneurs. And what's been fascinating for me in chatting with them and, and learning about their research is it's not just men who have the bias, it's women too. And so as investors and as a Golden Seeds where we're 80% female investors, we have 20% of our investor base is male, right, trying to educate ourselves on how do we ask questions? Well, it turns out we ask women entrepreneurs questions differently than we ask male entrepreneurs. And so we're trying to educate ourselves and our male colleagues in other groups on how do we actually try and shift this? Because just this isn't a pipeline problem. There are enough companies out there with women in leadership positions. It's how we're getting them into the process, how we're coaching them through the process, how we're, how we're asking the questions of them in the process. And it's really fascinating research that's being done that we're trying to internalize and also broadcast out more broadly so people can understand it. And it's actually there's an important message in there for entrepreneurs because one of the, one of the, um, some of the research says that women get asked more uh, prevention questions versus promotion questions than their male colleagues. And if you get what asked does that mean? for every, so promotion would be, you know, what's your aspiration versus prevention would be, you know, well, when do you hit break even? Um, you know, they're more about risk mitigation. And when those questions get asked early on in the process, so in the early pitching stages, women, the companies that get asked more prevention questions get less money um, than those that are able to kind of really talk about their aspirations and their visions for the company. And what was fascinating from that was in the research for me is, okay, how do I coach entrepreneurs to take a prevention question and flip it to a promotion answer? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a key thing we have to work with entrepreneurs, right, your audience um, or your, your, you know, your, the folks on your platform on how do if you get that prevention question, do you then make sure you get back to the aspirational and the, and the promotion and the promise of what your company can do versus going in the rabbit hole of risk. Because all of these companies are risky and it's all about understanding the risk and, and making sure you understand it and can work to help the company grow despite those risks. So it's a great point. Can you give an example of a prevention question and how do you turn that into a promotion uh, answer? Uh, I'm going to be thinking on the fly on this. I would say, you know, so prevention question would be, you know, when, you, you know, when do you hit break even, right? So mm -hmm. when does your revenue, you know, cover, cover your costs? 
And I think you could answer that and say, you know, our target to break even is 18 months. Uh, but, you know, I would then switch it to say, but, you know, it's amazing because at that point, that's just we're at, you know, half a percent market penetration. And if we get to five, you know, if we really do what our vision is, the market's why. Like, that's just our, that's a bare minimum case, right? We want to be 100x that, you know, 1,000x that, you know, in 24 months or 36 months, right? So you want to address the question that gets asked, but then make sure you're taking it back to your expiration, which is, my plan isn't to break even in 18 months. My plan is to have this huge company in three years. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. And, and, and you're saying that the research shows that the women get more of these prevention questions. I, didn't, I hadn't heard that before. So very good insight, actually. Yeah, I, I was uh, anticipating. I'm happy, I'm, happy, I'm happy to send you the links on that because it, it, is, it is incredibly fascinating. And, Very interesting. Yes, um, fascinating. I, I, keep, I definitely, you know, and, and want to keep reading more on this and, and having the discussions because I think it is important to how do we change the questions. And I, I even myself now, since I've learned all this over the last, literally it's been over the last three, four weeks, is, okay, how do I change my questions now when someone's pitching to me for the first time? Yeah. You know, at some point, so what, I want to understand when their break even is, but how am I not, how do I make sure I'm asking the right questions in a bigger session so I'm not putting them on their back foot, right? So that they can shine their best, right? They're trying to get people excited about the company. Because I always tell entrepreneurs, you know, your every conversation is to get you to the next conversation. Yeah. So, so let me ask you something much more blatant, which is, um, you know, when people look at, young women entrepreneurs, they're, uh, often there is this question about, you know, at what how does this person manage, uh, you know, it's, it's cliched uh, bias of how does this person manage children and, and uh, family and, and, and uh, being an entrepreneur and the long hours needed and so on and so forth. What uh, your current investigation is reporting what on this topic? They're doing it, right? I mean, no one ever asked their male peers those questions. No, <laughs> they figure definitely it out, not. Right? Like, but I've been asking this out. question because there's a lot of um, sensitivity around this right now. So I, I think I suspect this is it's, a latent. This, this they, question they, is latent, and they don't really come out and ask it, right? No, it is late, and, and, and so obviously in our group, um, you know, again, having 80% women, most of whom had successful careers, they figured it out. They figure the entrepreneurs will figure it out. I do have entrepreneurs who said that they've been asked those questions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, always they're always a little surprised because it's not necessarily an appropriate question, or mm-hmm. you know, it, so usually they won't answer. Or they'll say, you know, we'll figure it out, or they give some insight. But um, if, they're, if they if they are confident enough, some of them will say, you know, do you ask male entrepreneurs that? Um, but that's how I coach them, and I say just know going in that they would never ask a male that, and so just say, you know, I've got a plan in place. Right? No one really needs to know what their plan is, but just say you have a plan in place. Um, I have a CEO in my portfolio who had a baby, you know, like, you know, two years in two years after funding and she's, you know, she's figured it out. It wasn't even it wasn't even an issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we figured out we had contingency plans as a board. We thought about it because we had to have contingency plans. God forbid something happened. Um but, you know, from that standpoint, but from an investor standpoint, you know, you figure they're going to figure it out just like the guys do who have, you know, who, who, who start a family or have a family. 
And I, I think mm-hmm. that's a bigger discussion in society um, that we have to have where, it, it, again, it gets to that implicit or that unconscious bias of, well, it's the woman who that's on versus the man in the family. Well, I mean, the bias comes from history, right? Uh, history and anthropology yeah. that uh, that typically <laughs> women have been taking care of children and uh, families and, and men have not been taking care of children and families. So I think it's uh, that shift of men participating more in taking care of children and so forth is a newer uh, phenomenon. And, and it's not even pervasive. It's, it's actually in certain societies still not the case. Right. No, as you say, you have a global community. I've lived, I'm not sure if, you, if, if you're aware of this, but I've lived in both South America and in Asia, and it's mm-hmm. very different in every, in every area. Um, and to yeah. be honest, in some areas, it's actually easier for, for women to stay in the workforce, right, given some, some things, yes. and some it's harder, again, because of cultural norms. So I can imagine for your community, it would be very different depending on where they are. I mean, I speak. You know, from I, uh, I, like to... I speak from a very U.S. centric, but um, but having lived overseas, I, I think in some ways it was easier. In some in some places we lived. <laughs> yeah. No, I I I'm Indian originally, um, even though I've been in the U.S. now for a very long time. But uh, but in in the Indian society, there's one culturally there's a lot of help. You everybody, even you know lower middle class families have servants. Um, so there's nannies and and lots of domestic help. So that's that covers a piece of the puzzle. And there's mm-hmm. also this phenomenon of extended family. There's a you know family members actually uh, living, mother-in-laws and and so on and so forth. So I, I actually wrote an article at some point with a with a case study. Um, and I think the title of the article was "Make Your Mother-in-Law Your First VC." <laughs> It was an Indian entrepreneur who, who basically had tremendous mother-in-law support, which uh, made it possible for her to uh, to do what she did is, uh, you know, dedicate huge amounts of time into building a company. <laughs> so uh, no, it's, it, that's absolutely that's absolutely true. And and here I think you know it, it's only possible for those uh, some of those cultures are. Living similar phenomenon out here, right? The mother, mothers-in-laws come and move, come and move in with the family here, and and provide a lot of that childcare support, and and so on and so forth. It's very common in the Indian community to have a mother-in-law living for you know better part of the year here with the family. So so that those options really? actually <laughs> remain even in the U.S. for certain women who are from those cultures. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I think a key a key part of this for for to remember is being an entrepreneur and founding a company is incredibly stressful, and yes. puts a lot of strain on a family, um, yes. whether there's children or not. You know, even even couples, right? And I see that I see that across the board with male and female founders. Male and female. Um, you know, is the other spouse willing? You know, willing does 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 you know does their significant other have the same risk tolerance that they do? Are they willing? You know, some couples, it's like, hey, I'll have a city job. I'll be the entrepreneur. I think it's very scary. You know, we, we have some some companies we see where, you know, both spouses have gone in, you know, to the to the to the to the enterprise. And, then you know, they're all in. Right. Because yeah. they're both banking on this. And so it, it's all about risk tolerance. And but it's very it's very stressful. And, and we try very I try to make sure with my entrepreneurs that, you know, they have an outlet of someone to talk to. And, you know, if it's not if it's 
someone on their board or a peer group of other entrepreneurs, right, to be able to talk about those sorts of things because it's 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 a it's a it's it's fun and people who do this do this for you know because they are passionate about the mission and the company they're trying to build, but it, it has a lot of ups and downs along the way. Yeah, absolutely, and the the shock absorbers are very important, and how you how you create those shock absorbers in your life are really part of the success of an entrepreneur's journey, I think. I love that phrase. I have not heard that phrase, shock absorbers. I love that. (laughs) I'm going to steal that. (laughs) Well, it's a great conversation. We could go on and on, but uh, but I I believe we have to let our audience go. So uh, thank you, Deb, for your perspective. And, And audience, thank you for listening. So as you know, Every week, you can come to our roundtables and get project-based coaching, uh, mentoring at the free public roundtables. Go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and sign up there, and we will uh, send you instructions on how to set set yourselves up for the pitch. And we will back again uh, soon with uh, another edition of the 1mby1m podcast. See you soon.